Father, we just thank you so much uh, for just this opportunity to come together and worship God. We thank you of what this weekend represents, Lord, and those who have given their lives so that we can do this, God. And uh, we, we are so grateful uh, for their sacrifice. And Father, we, we are also so grateful for just for the word that you have given us and the opportunity we get to, to study it and, Lord, learn from you, hear from you. And so, God, I pray that this morning, Father, I would be nothing more than uh, your microphone, God, that you would... The message that you want to get across is what would be spoken, Father, and that through the power of your Holy Spirit, Father, that you would, uh, you would change our hearts, Lord, and you would allow us to uh, truly grasp and comprehend what you want to say to us here this morning. And so we ask this all in your son's name. Amen. Do me a favor, grab your Bibles, turn with me to 2 Samuel 13. 2 Samuel 13 is where we're going to start out today. We are continuing our series uh, in the life of David that we picked up again last week. And uh, we have a little bit of a different message uh, planned for us here this morning. And what I mean by that is rather than anchor ourselves in one story in David's life or one particular section of scripture, today what we're going to do is we're going to look, uh, look at a lot of different scriptures, uh, three in total, three different sort of scenes that we're going to see in David's life. And all of these scenes that we are looking at, they are united by a single thread. And that is that they are all the aftermath of what we talked about last week. So if you were here last week and you know we covered what is uh, the most infamous story in David's life, and that is the famous story of David and Bathsheba, where David commits adultery. He cheats on his own wives, he cheats on another man's wife, uh, sleeps with Bathsheba, gets her pregnant, and then in the cover-up for all of that, uh, actually ends up becoming a murderer, ends up killing Bathsheba's husband, Uriah. And the main point of last week's message was all about how a, a moment of sin can lead to a lifetime of consequences. A moment of sin can lead to a lifetime of consequences. And what we saw last week is all the consequences that David received for his one moment of sin. And if you remember, one of those consequences that David received was in relation to his family. Uh, back in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 10, I think it was, God says to David, David, because you killed the sword with Uriah, uh, because you killed Uriah with the sword, he said, the sword is now never going to depart your family. And what we said that meant is that meant that violence and destruction and dysfunction was now always going to mark David's family. And today we are going to see the aftermath of, of that. We're going to see the fulfillment of that consequence. And then once we've looked at these few stories, then we'll sort of take a step back and we'll see what we can learn from it. So we're not going to waste any time. 2 Samuel 13 is where we are. And the only background I think you need for today's, uh, this first story we're going to look at is you may remember I said last week, David had seven wives at one point in his life. And with those seven wives, as you can imagine, David fathered a number of children. Uh, the exact number gets a little bit fuzzy, but one scholar I consulted said it may have been as high as 20 children, 20 kids, 19 boys actually, and one girl. And today's story is going to involve three of David's children. It's going to involve David's oldest son, a man by the name of Amnon. It's going to involve David's only daughter, a woman by the name of Tamar. And then it's going to involve another one of David's sons, and that is Absalom. And just so you know, uh, Tamar and Absalom are full brother and sister. They have the, both the same mom and the same dad. Amnon is actually a half-brother of both Tamar and Absalom. He has the same dad, David, but he has a different mom. And, uh, as, uh, and if that sounds a little bit like a soap opera, just wait, because it gets even worse than that. So we're going to pick it up here in verses 1 and 2 of uh, 2 Samuel 13. And in these first couple of verses, we learn something a little bit disturbing. This is what we read. It says, In the course of time, Amnon, son of David, fell in love with Tamar, the beautiful sister of Absalom, son of David. 
Amnon became so obsessed with his sister Tamar that he made himself ill. She was a virgin, and it seemed impossible for him to do anything to her. So here we see this disturbing, here we see this, this revolting piece of news, and that is that Amnon, David's oldest son, has fallen in love with his half-sister. He has fallen in love with Tamar. And not just fallen in love, the text says that she, he, he is obsessed with Tamar. In fact, he has made himself sick over his love for Tamar. Uh, I don't know if you've ever fallen so in love with someone that you've kind of felt physically sick as a result of it, the, the idea of not being with them. Well, listen, it's one thing to feel that way about a cute girl or a cute guy in one of your classes, right? It's another thing to feel that way about a relative. But that is how Amnon feels towards Tamar. And so Amnon feels this way towards his half-sister. So we read on in the story, and we see that Amnon decides to get some sort of advice about what is going on. And so he seeks out his cousin, a man by the name of Jonadab, and Jonadab gives Amnon horrible advice. Rather than tell Amnon, Amnon, you need to get over this feeling that you have for your sister, Jonadab actually tells Amnon to pursue it. In fact, Jonadab gives Amnon a way that he would be able to sleep with his sister. Look with me at verse 5. This is Jonadab's advice. He says, go to bed and pretend to be ill, Jonadab said. When your father comes to see you, say to him, I would like my sister Tamar to come and give me something to eat. Let her prepare the food in my sight so I may watch her and then eat it from her hand. And so here's this advice that Jonadab gives Amnon. And basically what he says is, Amnon, why don't you fake that you have an illness? And then when your father David comes into the room to see how you're doing, why don't you tell your dad, Dad, you need to make my sister come into the room and give me something to eat. And the idea being that once Tamar is in Amnon's room, then Amnon can do with her what he wants. And that is exactly what Amnon does. He fakes an illness. David comes into the room. Uh, Amnon says to David, Dad, you need to make my sister come in here and bring me something to eat. David does that. Tamar comes into the room and then we are told that once Tamar is in the room, we're told that uh, Amnon grabs her, and then Amnon forces himself upon her. And that's what you see when you jump down to verse 14. It says, but he refused to listen to her. Tamar, as you can imagine, was protesting here. He refused to listen to her, and since he was stronger than she, he raped her. So Amnon forces himself upon his sister. Amnon, as it says there, rapes his sister. And the aftermath of this is, uh, is uh, devastating um, as a result of what happens. We are told that actually after uh, 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 Amnon sleeps with his sister, that any feeling he had for her goes away. In fact, we're told that Amnon hates his sister now. He hates her with an intense hatred. He hates her, it says, even more than he loved her, and he sends her out of the room. And this is one of the sadder, this is one of the more tragic sort of stories that we have in the Bible. One of the things that really surprises people who read the Bible for the first time is how it does not pull any punches. The Bible is very honest about the shortcomings of human beings. It's very honest about the shortcomings of you and me, and that is what we see in this particular story. And there are ultimately three very tragic things that come out of this particular incident, of this particular story. The most tragic thing, obviously, is the effect that this has on Tamar. Uh, we read in verse 20 of this passage that after this whole incident is over, it says that Tamar spends the rest of her life a desolate woman, or as one translation puts it, she spends her life a devastated woman. And we can imagine why, right? Not only does she have to live with the memory of what her brother has done to her for the rest of her life, but in addition to that, the story also makes it clear that what Amnon has done to his sister 
uh, has actually caused Tamar to, to lose her virginity. And in this particular culture, men usually were not willing to marry a woman who was not a virgin. And so as a result of that, Tamar spends the rest of her life single. Even though she did nothing to deserve this, she ends up, the impression we are given is she spends the rest of her life single. So the most obvious tragic thing to come out of this story is the effect that it has on Tamar. But there are a couple of other very tragic things to come out of this story as well. The second really sad thing that we see in this story is David's reaction to all of this. David has a very baffling reaction to this when he hears what has happened to his daughter by the hands of his son. Look with me at verse 21 here. Uh, this is what David's reaction is when he first hears about it. It says, when King David heard all of this, he was furious. So when David hears about this, he is angry. Now that is not baffling. We would expect David to be angry. But what is baffling is what David does next. Do you know what David does in response to his anger? Well, you read on in this story and you see that David doesn't do anything. David does not do anything. You see, we read here that David is furious, and we would expect the next verse to say something like, and so David had Amnon sent to prison, or so David had Amnon expelled from the kingdom, or even so David had Amnon executed, which is what the Old Testament law would require at this time in such an incident. But if you read the next verse, you see the next verse is not even about David. The next verse is about Absalom. And you read on in this story, and you see that David doesn't do anything about what has happened in his family. There's an Old Testament scholar that I, I read a lot. I like to consult him for anything I do in the Old Testament. And, and I read what he said on this particular passage, and he did something I've never seen him do before in seven or eight years that I've consulted him. He was commenting on this verse, and he says, you know, David is angry at what happened. And then he writes in big, bold, capital letters, and I've never seen him do that before. In big, bold, capital letters, he writes this. He says, but he does nothing about it. But he does nothing about it. And that is this author's way of, of expressing the frustration that all of us have as we read this scene. David, how can you see what is happening in your family, what has happened in your family, and not do anything about it? And I want you to hold on to that because we're going to come back to David's baffling reaction in a moment, okay? But that's the second tragic thing to come out of this. It's David's reaction to all of this. The third tragic thing to come out of this is what Absalom does, David's other son does, in response to all of this. Absalom, seeing that David is not going to do anything about what has happened to, to his sister, Absalom decides then that he's going to take matters into his own hands. And we read that two years later, two years after this incident, Absalom throws a party. And he invites Amnon to this party, and he actually asks David to force Amnon to come to this party. And when Amnon shows up at this party, what does Absalom do? Absalom has Amnon killed. Absalom orders one of his men to kill Amnon, and that is what they do. And so Absalom kills his brother. And that is the second tra third tragic thing to come out of this story. So as I said, this is, this is a very sad story. It's one of the saddest stories in the Bible. But what is this story? This story is the direct aftermath of what we saw last week, right? God said to David, David, violence is going to be a part of your family as a result of what you've done. And now we see the direct aftermath of that. And so that's what we see in this story. Now, turn with me to 2 Samuel 15, okay? This is the second passage we're going to look at, 2 Samuel 15. So we read that after Absalom kills Amnon, he actually leaves Jerusalem. Uh, he leaves Israel for a period of three years. 
He is fearing punishment for what he has done, and so he wants to wait till everything dies down a little bit. And so everything does die down at the end of three years, and Absalom is actually welcomed back into Jerusalem, back into Israel. But as you can imagine, his relationship now with his father is strained. Uh, David is upset at Absalom for killing Amnon still, and, and Absalom is upset at David for not doing anything about what has happened to Absalom's sister. And so, uh, over the course of a few years, we are told that Absalom decides that his father no longer should be king over Israel. And Absalom decides that he wants to stage a coup in order to replace his father as king over the country. And we see the beginnings of that coup in the first few verses of 2 Samuel 15. Look with me starting in verse 1. It says, In the course of time, Absalom provided himself with a chariot and horses and with 50 men to run ahead of him. It says, He would get up early and stand by the side of the road leading to the city gate. Whenever anyone came with a complaint to be placed before the king for a decision, Absalom would call out to him, What town are you from? The man would answer, your servant is from one of the tribes of Israel. Then Absalom would say to him, look, your claims are valid and proper, but there is no representative of the king to hear you. And Absalom would add, if only I were appointed judge in the land, then everyone who has a complaint or case could come to me, and I would see that they would receive justice. And so here we see the beginnings of this coup that, that Absalom is staging against David. And what Absalom is doing here is exceedingly clever. It's wickedly clever. Let me explain what's going on here. One of the responsibilities that the king of Israel had in Israel, that King David had, is he was also the justice system in Israel, okay? Whenever there was a dispute that arose between a couple of people and they couldn't, couldn't decide it, anyone could bring that claim before the king. And David would hear the dispute, and David would rule on it, and whatever he said would go in that particular matter. So David was also the justice system. Well, what Absalom, we're told, is doing in this scene is he would get up really early every morning, and he would stand on the side of the road uh, that, that leads into the palace. And whenever someone would come to the king with a, with a complaint, with a case that they wanted David to decide, Absalom would stop him. And he would say, hey, what case are you bringing before the king? And the person would explain. And Absalom would always side with that individual. He'd say, you are right in this matter. Your claims are valid and proper. You, get whatever, you should get whatever you think you deserve in this matter. But then he'd say this. But he'd say, but, but don't bother bringing the case to David. The king won't hear your complaint. The king doesn't care about justice. And then verse 4, Absalom would add this. He'd sort of throw up his hands in frustration. He'd say, oh. If only someone would make me judge in Israel, if only someone would make me king in Israel, then I would see that justice is always served. And what is Absalom doing here? He's trying to gain a following for himself. He's trying to gain people who want him to be king. Well, guess what? It works. In fact, we are told that Absalom gained such a following that he is actually able to declare himself king over Israel. He gained such a following that he is actually able to run David out of Jerusalem. David has to leave the palace. He has to leave the capital city of Jerusalem, of Israel, Jerusalem. And this sets up then this, this civil war in the nation of Israel. Turn with me now to 2 Samuel chapter 18, okay? 2 Samuel chapter 18. So this sets up this great civil war in Israel with David, uh, everybody who wants David to be king on one side and everybody who wants Absalom to be king on the other side. And this great battle, this great civil war culminates in this battle. And in this battle, ultimately, Absalom and his forces are overwhelmed 
And actually in this battle, Absalom, David's son, is killed. And what I want us to see is I want us to see the reaction that David has to the death of his son. You actually will see it in verse 33 of 2 Samuel 18. So it's the last verse in this particular chapter. But despite the fact that Absalom's death means that uh, the, the civil war in Israel is over because now there's no movement following Absalom anymore, and despite the fact that Absalom wanted David dead himself, when David hears of the death of his son, this is the reaction he has, verse 33. It says, The king was shaken. He went up from the room over the gateway and wept. And as he went, he said, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, if only I had died instead of you, oh, Absalom, my son, my son. And here we see this cry of David. And probably the thing that stands out the most is that David repeats these same two words five times in this one verse. And those are the words, my son, my son, my son, my son, my son, David said. And I think that shows the depth of David's grief. You know, one of the things that we haven't talked a lot about in the series, but, but David is one of the most eloquent men that we have examples of in the Bible. David wrote nearly one half of the Psalms that we have in the book of Psalms in our Old Testament. Some of the most endearing images that we have in the Bible have been given to us by God, the famous, or by David, the famous 23rd Psalm, for example, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. David is the one who wrote that. And yet as David hears the death of his son, all he can seem to muster is my son, my son, my son. And I think that shows the depth of David's grief. Don't forget that when David hears the news of Absalom's death, that is now the third son that David has lost. David has lost Amnon, David has lost Absalom, and don't forget the son that was born to David in Bathsheba. David has seen nothing but loss in his family at this point in his life. And that's what David is expressing here. And so here we see all of this destruction. Here we see all of this dysfunction. Here we see all of this violence that has marked David's family. And I, I could share with you even more, but for the sake of time, I'll stop there. That's all the destruction that we see in David's family. And the question that we have to ask ourselves, the question we always have to ask ourselves whenever we study Scripture is what are we meant to learn from this? What is God trying to teach us in all of this? Well, I think ultimately there are a couple of things that are going on here, okay? First of all, this is absolutely a continuation of what we talked about last week. God said to David, David, because of all that you've done, violence is now going to mark your family. And that is what we're seeing right here. And so in some ways, if I wanted to, I won't. But in some ways, if I wanted to, this message could be a continuation of what we talked about last week. How a moment of sin can lead to a lifetime of consequences. Because that is what we're seeing here. So that's one thing that is going on here. I don't think it's the only thing that's going on here. I think there's something else that we're meant to learn from this as well. What did God mean when he said that violence was always going to mark David's family? And what I mean by that is how was God able to guarantee that violence was always going to be a part of David's family after uh, he sinned with Bathsheba? How was God able to guarantee that? You know, the Bible tells us that God never tempts anyone into sin. God never tempts anyone into evil. What does that mean for our story? That means that God did not make uh, Amnon sleep with Tamar. God did not make Absalom kill Amnon. God did not make Absalom stage this coup against David. God would never do that. 
And so God did not cause any of the violence in David's family. And yet, before it all happened to David, God was able to say, David, violence is always going to mark your family. And so if God didn't cause that violence, because God would never do that, how was he able to guarantee that all this violence, all this destruction would mark David's family? Well, let me tell you something about how our God operates, okay? One of the greatest things that our God does for us in this life, and it often goes unnoticed by us, but one of the greatest things that God does for us in this life is God spends a lot of time in this life protecting us from ourselves. God spends a lot of time in this life protecting us from having to suffer the consequences of our own poor decisions. If if you have ever sinned before and not suffered a direct consequence for it, that is God's protection. That is God's grace. That is God saying to you, I want to give you another chance now to get this right. But there are sometimes the Bible says where we can sin so repeatedly or so boldly, so flagrantly, as we saw David do last week, where God says, you know what, I'm not mocked. I'm not mocked. And therefore, as a result of that, what God does is God removes his protection from us. And he says to us, okay, I'm going to now allow you to suffer the natural outcome, the natural consequences of the choices that you have made. And that's what brings me back to that baffling response that David had in reaction to what happened to Tamar. God is telling us something when he includes that response. You know what he's telling us? He's telling us that David is not the model father. God is telling us that David has made some pretty big mistakes when it comes to his parenting. And I think when God said to David, David, violence is now always going to mark your family. God was not saying I'm going to cause violence because God would never do that. But what God was saying is, okay, David, I'm now going to remove my hand of protection from you. And I'm going to allow you and I'm going to allow your family to experience the natural consequences of the way that you have chosen to parent your children. I'm going to allow you to experience the natural consequences of some of the decisions that you have made. And I think all the dysfunction and all the destruction that we see in David's family can actually be traced back to the choices that David made as a father and the example that David has set for his children. Let me illustrate what I mean. Let's take Amnon, David's oldest son, Amnon. What do you think it was like for Amnon to grow up in the palace? What do you think it was like for Amnon to have King David as his dad? What do you think Amnon learned from his father? His dad had seven wives. His dad had all these concubines. Amnon could not help but see this this revolving door that David had on his bedroom and the many women who went in and out of it on a daily basis. I said it last week. David doesn't seem to have ever denied a single sexual urge in his entire life. Don't you think Amnon picked up on that? And while that does not excuse Amnon for the detestable thing that he does to his sister in this passage, I do have to ask, what did Amnon have modeled for him? What did Amnon learn from his father about what was most important in this life? Take Absalom. Absalom was a violent man. Absalom killed his brother. Absalom wanted David dead. Absalom started a civil war that that led to the death of Israelites. Where did Absalom learn all of that? Well, what did Absalom see in his dad? Every spring, every summer, every fall, his father was away at war. 
And then the one spring where his father decides to stay home, what does his father do? He's responsible for another man's death, right? He's responsible for Uriah's death. What does Absalom learn from his father? If there's a problem, the way you get rid of it is through violence. Is there any wonder that Absalom has turned out the way that he has? I think all the destruction, I think all the dysfunction that we see in David's family can be traced back to David and the choices that David made, the the model, the example that David set for his family. You know, one of the best uh, illustrations, one of the best analogies I've ever heard for parenting, it came from a pastor that I love to listen to, a man by the name of Alistair Begg. And I was listening to him, and he was giving a sermon on parenting. And he said in his sermon, almost as a side comment, but I latched onto it because it was such an image for me. He said, you know, parents, he said, kids are a lot like wet cement. Kids are a lot like wet cement. A couple years ago for Father's Day, uh, my mother-in-law gave me a kit where you could make a stepping stone. Have you ever seen that before? It comes with a mold and it comes with some powder and you mix the powder with water and it makes some concrete-like substance and you pour it into the mold and then you have a period of time before it sets to make an impression in it or draw something in it or something like that. And since I got it for Father's Day, I decided that I wanted to have a stepping stone of my son's handprint. And I actually have the finished product right here. And I don't know how well you can see it, but I got to tell you, this turned out a lot better than I could have ever imagined when we started this particular project, okay? Uh, when we did this, Lucas was a little over one years old. And as you can imagine, it, it's hard to get a good handprint of a one-year-old. And we had to do this over and over and over again, not to mention he was also trying to eat the concrete, so that was another problem. (laughs) And as we were trying to do this over and over and over again, quickly what I realized that this was becoming is this was becoming a race against time. Because the longer it took to get get an impression of my son's handprint, the harder it was going to be, because this was going to get harder and harder and harder, and eventually there'd come a point like it is right now where I would not be able to make any impression in it. And what Alistair was saying in his sermon is that kids are a lot like wet cement. They come into this world as wet cement. And as parents, we only have a limited amount of time to make some sort of impression in them before they begin to harden and they become set in their ways. Now, when David's children were wet cement, what impression was David leaving on them? Well, I have no doubt that he was leaving the impression of the importance of faith. I'm sure about that. But he was also leaving the impression of of polygamy, of adultery, of war, of violence, of, of murder. And honestly, probably a whole lot of not being around. A whole lot of absence. Is it any wonder that David's kids turned out the way that they did? And when you realize that, you realize that the principle that is operating underneath all these chapters here is actually a parenting principle. And the principle is this, we model for our children examples that they are going to follow. We model for our children examples that they are going to follow. We are making impressions on our children that are going to stick with them for the rest of their lives. We model for our children examples that they are going to follow. And so the question that we are meant to ask out of all these chapters is, is what impression are we leaving on our children? What are our children learning from our example? A couple weeks ago, I was driving to church with my wife and my kids, and uh, on the way to church, Lucas, who's three and a half now, uh, he was making it clear to to his mommy and me that he did not want to go to his class. He did not want to go to Sunday school. And when we asked him why he didn't want to go, Lucas launched into a three-minute defense of why he didn't want to go to his Sunday school class. 
And in this defense, he must have said uh, this one phrase ten times. And it was a phrase I'd never heard him say before. But the phrase was, the truth is. The truth is. Well, Mommy, Daddy, the truth is I just don't want to go. Because the truth is that there's just a lot of kids there. And the truth is that there's just not a lot of parents there. And the truth is that I just don't want to go. And my wife and I, you know, we're trying to fight back laughter as we're listening to this. Because we're thinking, where in the world did my son learn this phrase, and the truth is? (laughs) Sounds like you already know. I didn't know that I say this until Friday. (laughs) And Friday, I was having a a passionate conversation with my wife, and I was defending myself on something. And I said to my wife, well, honey, the truth is, and the second I said it, it hit me like a ton of bricks. Oh, I say it. And Lucas has picked up on it. And Lucas has learned that whenever you defend yourself, one of the phrases that you need to use is the truth is. And our kids are always doing that, aren't they? They're always observing us. They're always watching us. And they're always making connections. This is what is important to mommy and daddy, and therefore this is what should be important to me. And that's why the Bible makes it clear that the the most important impression that we can make in our children, the most important thing that we can teach them, the most important thing that we can model them is the importance of faith is the importance of loving Jesus, of following after God. This is what Moses says in Deuteronomy 6, when he gives the most famous, the most important commandment in the entire Old Testament. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And right after he gives the most important commandment in the Old Testament, what does Moses say? He says, and you shall impress this upon your children. And the Hebrew word translated impress is a word that is used for when a sword pierces the heart of someone. You are to pierce the heart of your children with the importance of loving God, of following after Jesus. That's why I I cannot stand this parenting philosophy that's around today. Where parents say, well, I don't want to force Christianity on my children. I I want them to discover whether or not it's right for them. No, that is not our responsibility as parents, according to the Bible. The responsibility that we have as parents is to teach our children, to model to our children the importance of following after God. The greatest gift that my parents gave for me, my parents gave me a ton of gifts, but the greatest gift that my parents gave for me is they taught me and they modeled for me the importance of faith. They taught me and modeled for me the importance of prayer. Every time we had a problem in our family, we would stop and pray about it. They taught me and modeled for me the importance of church. I've talked about this before. Church came before any other priority in our life. It came before sports. It came before schoolwork. It came before anything else that we had. And they taught for me and they modeled for me the importance of simply trusting in God. My dad owned a small business my entire life. And money was tight sometimes. But I cannot tell you how many times my dad said this. He said, but God's got us. God's going to take care of us. It's a phrase, by the way, that I now find myself saying to my own family. We are to model for our kids the importance of faith. What what are you modeling for your children? But of course, all this presupposes something. It presupposes that we are actually around our children uh, long enough to make an impression on them, to make some sort of impact on them. A year ago, I was, I was listening to a sermon on Absalom. It was given by another pastor I admire. Haddon Robinson is his name. And 
Uh, Haddon was, was paying, uh, focusing on this cry that David has when he hears about Absalom's death. And he was especially focusing on the middle of this cry where David says this, If only I had died instead of you. And Absalom, or, or Haddon Robinson looked at that, that phrase and he said something like this. He said, Oh, David. He said, It's so easy to say that you would have rather died than your son. Any parent can say that they would have rather died than their kids. He said, David, the question is, did you ever live for Absalom? Did you ever live for him? And the observation that Haddon was making was that as he looks at David's life, he just doesn't see any way that David had any time for his kids. How could he? Seven wives, 20 kids, a nation to run? How could he have any time for his children? And then Haddon said something that I don't think I will ever forget as long as I'm a parent. He said this. He said, parents, he said, we need to realize that time is one of our greatest enemies, but it's disguised as our friend. Time is one of our greatest enemies, but it's disguised as our friends. And here's what he, mean by, he meant by that. He said, as parents, we always think we have more time. Oh, Lucas, I, I can't play with you right now, but, but wait till tomorrow. Tomorrow, then I'll be able to play with you. Or, honey, this week is really tough, but wait till the weekend. When the weekend comes, then I'll be able to have some time to focus on the family. Or, as I think is really the case these days, this month is really tough, right? The next six weeks are really tough, but in a month and a half, we have our vacation, then we'll be able to settle down, and then we'll be able to spend some quality time as a family. And we always think that we have tomorrow. We always think we have another day in order to spend with our family. But what happens to time, especially in relationship with our kids? What happens to it? Quicker than we know it, it runs out. Quicker than we know it, 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 it go, gets away from us. And all of a sudden, our kids have hardened, if you will, and they have learned from us what they have learned from us, for better or for worse. You know, the pull of our culture, especially in Orange County and especially in Yorba Linda, is career, Right? We've got to make a name for ourselves. We've got to be successful. We've got to rise the ranks in our company. And we tell ourselves, if, if I just work really hard this year, this is a really important year, and if I, just, if I just work really hard this year, if I work an extra weekend, if I work an extra few hours, then after the end of this year, then we'll be able to have that freedom, and then we'll be able to spend more time together. And the question I have, have is how long are we going to keep on telling ourselves that lie? Because it's never enough, and there's always more that we can do. You know, when you leave your company, when all of us leave our jobs, when we leave our company, when we retire, when we leave that place that we have invested so much time and so much energy into, what is our company going to do? What is our company going to do? They're going to replace us. In fact, probably the next day, the day after we leave, there is going to be someone else sitting in our chair. There is going to be someone else doing our work. They are going to replace us. But when we leave our family, when we pass from this earth, as all of us will do, what's going to happen in our family? There's no replacing mom. There's no replacing dad. Anybody who's lost their parents know that. And so if we're going to spend a little bit more time in one place or the other, where does it make sense to spend the most time? Parents, can I encourage us, all of us, before today is over, Get out your phone. Get out your calendar. 
And I know this sounds weird, but this is the reality of our day and age. Schedule some time with your children. Put on your calendar some time with your kids. A half day, a full day, whatever you're able to afford. And when you spend that time with your kids, can I encourage you two things? First of all, no cell phones. Cell phones off, no text messages, no emails. This is uninterrupted time with our kids. And then second, begin this time in prayer. Dedicate this time towards God. My mom sent me something from the devotional, Our Daily Bread, not too long ago. It was something called the Rule of Five. And in this family, before they go anywhere, school, work, or a trip even, they make sure they're ready five minutes before they have to leave. And they get together as a family, and they pray over whatever they're going to do. The parents pray for the kids before they go to school. And I thought, what a great thing to model to your kids. And if you're sitting here, and if you're someone with adult children, which I know is the case for a lot of people in this church, let me also say this, okay? I don't think we ever as kids lose the need to hear from our parents. We love you, we're proud of you, and we support you. I remember uh, just a couple weeks ago, I was reading an interview with Charlie Rose. If you don't know Charlie Rose, he's a famous newscaster, one of the most well-respected men in his field, has been for decades. He's 75 years old. And he's famous for the interviews that he does for other people, and he, he, he was doing this interview, and someone asked him, he said, Charlie, if there's one person that you could interview that you have it, who would it be, and what would you ask him? And Charlie answered this way. He said, I would interview my father. And you know what I would ask him? I would ask him, Dad, are you proud of me? Are you proud of me? And I don't know why, but that got me. Here is the 75-year-old man, one of the most well-respected men in his field, in his industry, and the question he wants the answer to more than any is, Dad, are you proud of me? I don't think we ever grow out of the need to hear I love you, I support you, I'm proud of you from our parents. So I would encourage you, if you have an adult child, could you call him up this week and say that to him? My dad went to the service last night. Six times between then and now, he has texted me, Chris, I'm proud of you. (laughs) I think he watched live stream the first service because he got another one after the first service. That's a little bit of an overkill, okay? And let me also say this, for especially parents of adult children. If you have a kid right now that is not walking with the Lord, and, and honestly, maybe not making decisions that you are proud of, this message is not intended to give you guilt, okay? We can model for our children perfectly what we need to model. But kids become adults, and kids make their own decisions. And, and that is a place where this analogy really breaks down, Okay? Because it does not matter how old our children are. It does not matter how hardened they seem to have become. There is no person that God cannot leave his imprint on. There is no person that God can't change. After the first service, a woman came up to me and she she said she had a daughter that was walking away from the Lord for a few years. And recently she's had an incredible restoration, come back to God. And the daughter said to the mom, and the mom was telling me this through tears, the the daughter said to the mom, Mom, you and dad laid the foundation for everything I'm coming back to. And so I would encourage you, you, I know you already are, but continue to pray for your children. 
because there is no person that God can't make his impression. And as we close here today, men and women, we are going to close by uh, praising and by worshiping our Father who is in heaven. Some of you may have had uh, not the best examples for dads here on this earth. That's okay. Because you have a Father in heaven who is perfect and who loves you. He loves you so much that he didn't just send his son to die for you. He sent his son to live for you. And we're going to close by worshiping that, that father. And, and we're going to sing a song we sing a lot here. And it probably has some of the simplest lyrics of any song that we sing at this church. But we need to be reminded of it. The song is Good, Good Father. And the chorus goes like this. You're a good, good father. It's who you are. It's who you are. It's who you are. And I'm loved by you. It's who I am. It's who I am. It's who I am. And those two statements right there, you're a good, good father, and I'm loved by you, that is the heart of what we believe as Christians. And so that's what we're going to praise God for. So would you do me a favor? Would you stand with me right now? And I'm going to pray for us as we close our time. pray. Father, we are uh, imperfect people, God. Father, we are imperfect uh, in, in, in a lot of ways. But one of the ways, Father, is, is we are imperfect moms and we are imperfect dads. We don't always know what to do with our children. We don't always know the best decisions to make, God. But Father, you are perfect. And I know, Father, you are able to step in, in in all the ways that we are imperfect, Father. And so, God, we ask, I ask for wisdom for every single mother, every single father, every single grandparent, every single aunt and uncle here, God. Would you give us the wisdom that we need to parent the younger generation, to parent our kids well? God, I pray for anybody who has an older child that is not walking with the Lord, God. I, I pray, Father, that you would bring them back to you and and the foundation that their parents set for them, Lord, would, uh, they would be reminded of that, God. And Father, I pray for all of us, Lord, whether we had great parents or whether we had uh, less than stellar parents, Father, that we would realize that when we become a Christian, you adopt us as your son, your daughter. And Father, you are good. And Father, you love us. And I know that's probably old news to some of us, God, but we need to be reminded of that. And we need to live in light of that. So, Father, I pray for this final song, God, would it be pleasing to you as we simply take our time here to to pause and to worship you and to thank you for who you are. We love you, Father. We thank you. And we ask all this in your son's name. Amen.